Welcome to the Good Fiction Podcast. Join us as we continue with Darkest, Darker, Dark, Episode 25. Any junior detective could have found Nathan and Debbie. It wasn't that the police department was stupid, but more like they were slow. Since it was generally thought that it was a case of two lovebirds flying off together, the media attention quickly died down. The less media attention there was, the less likely the police department was wanting to get in a big hurry. Mike McKnight had learned from friends in the department close to the investigation that there had been a falling out between Debbie and Mr. Calhoun. No one really suspected anything bad was going on. McKnight knew better, though. What his friends at the department didn't know was what he had found in Marshall's apartment under the couch. He kept replaying the facts in his head. Marshall must have some weird obsession for Debbie. The parts of a bomb were found under his sofa. They weren't illegal, unassembled. Debbie's parents had been killed on a flight over the Atlantic Ocean by a bomb. His attempts to connect the dots seemed to keep coming up empty. Why would an established teacher, educated, smart, develop an obsession with a girl so deep that he would murder her parents? An even bigger question than that was if such a thing were even possible. But then again... Why were there parts to a crude explosive device under the guy's couch? There were lots of dots, all right, but none of them seemed to make a picture when connected. He was going to need some real big-time evidence on this thing. What he really needed was time to snoop around in Marshall's apartment again. He needed time to slowly go through everything and see what was there. What he needed was about an hour to go through Marshall's apartment, but there's no way he could get a search warrant. What he was going to have to do would be illegal, a career ender for sure if he was caught. He figured it'd be easy enough, though, if he could get in for about an hour. A stakeout of the apartment complex drive would catch him leaving, a quick look-see to see where he was going, and then a mad dash back to the apartment should give him all the time he needed. McKnight dropped his patrol car off at the station around 7 p.m. when he got finished with his shift. His Ford Ranger extended cab sat waiting, freshly washed and armor-alled. The chrome rims sparkled in contrast to the shiny black finish. His first stop would be the parking lot of Marshall's apartments. He glided effortlessly through the leftovers of rush hour traffic and made his way quickly to his destination. Once there, he drove at a snail's pace, searching for Marshall's Honda Accord. Surprisingly, he didn't find it at the first time through. Not worried about being spotted, though, because Marshall had no idea what McKnight's personal vehicle was. He repeated his waltz through the lot, looking carefully left and right and back and forth, but Marshall's car just wasn't there. No sweat. He just find a good spot where he could see the traffic as it turned into the apartments and watch for his car. Hopefully, once he got home, he'd go out again. McKnight didn't mind waiting. He really didn't have anything else to do anyway. 
There was a McDonald's not too far from where his eyes were trained. He was able to go through the drive through without losing track of the cars going in and out of the apartment complex. He then found a place to park and eat his two McRib sandwiches, large fries, and vanilla shake. What had originally been a trickle of cars coming in and out of the complex reduced to nothing. The sun began to completely disappear and gave way to the lights of the evening. Headlights, street lights, and the artificial lights of strip centers and businesses took over the duty of showing people the way. No darkness exists on the surface of the earth around a city. Lights can be misleading, though, especially the artificial kind. McKnight was starting to get tired. It began to be obvious that if Marshall was coming home that night, he most likely wouldn't be going back out. It was getting too late even for a creep like Marshall. Even creeps have to sleep. There wasn't much reason to stick around. Just as a precaution, he thought he'd drive through the parking lot again in case he'd missed the car coming in for some reason. It wasn't there. Just as he was giving up for the night, his cell phone rang. It was Jimmy Spencer. Jimmy was barely 20 years old and anxious to please his co-workers on the police force. His boring desk job was driving him nuts, and he was actively seeking a patrol job, but was being referred to as too green by the decision makers. What he needed was someone with a little experience to put in a good word for him. That's what McKnight had convinced him of anyway. McKnight? Yes. Spencer. What's up? I've got some information on those missing kids. You know, the ones you were asking about? Yeah, what'd you find out? Well, they've been located. They're in Chicago. Chicago? Don't ask me. That's where they are, though. How'd you find out? Captain asked me to book a flight for one of the detectives to fly out there tomorrow and bring them back. The Chicago police are going to pick them up as runaways and hold them. I see. There was a break in their conversation. McKnight was lost in thought and Spencer was waiting for a pat on the back. That's all I could find out, he finally said. If there's anything else that pops up, I'll let you know. You did good, Spencer. I won't forget this. McKnight never sounded so insincere in his life when he pushed the end button. He U-turned his car in the middle of the street, causing an oncoming traffic to honk and swear through rolled-up windows. He didn't care, though. His hunch was that Marshall had found Debbie and Nathan and was on his way to Chicago if he wasn't already there. In fact... It was more than just a hunch. He felt the deepest part of his gut that this was true. It didn't take long before he was back at Marshall's apartment complex and popping the door open with the skill of a seasoned burglar. He shut the door behind him and began slowly going through the apartment. He wasn't sure what he was looking for. He needed something to tie Marshall to what had happened on the plane. It wasn't really for the sake of evidence, not yet anyway, but more to convince himself of what he was suspecting. An hour was spent going through Marshall's bedroom. There was absolutely nothing there out of the ordinary. His clothes were neatly hung up. The place was spotless. The guy was obviously a neat freak. Nothing wrong with a little obsessiveness, he supposed. 
what he needed to figure this guy out. His next stop was what was obviously a spare bedroom. It was way too neat to have been lived in any time recently. Even a neat freak could allow a crinkle in the bed or a slightly twisted mini-blind. There was none of that in this room. The closet, however, looked to be even more promising. There, hung neatly impressed as though they had just come from the cleaners, was a closet full of women's clothing. A variety was there, everything from t-shirts to night dresses, hung in categories of casual to formal. The room smelled nice, as if the clothes had been recently laundered. There wasn't much that seemed even the slightest out of place. There was no girl living there. McKnight was sure of it. Whose clothes were these, then? He went through the drawers of the closet that sat opposite the bed. The top drawers contained a girl's underwear and a couple of swimsuits. The bottom two drawers were something altogether different. They contained baby clothes, the kind of clothes a newborn infant would wear. They were neatly stacked, just as the other clothes were in the room, folded and laundered. They were neutral in color, no pinks or blues that would indicate the sex of an expected arrival, but there were yellows and whites. This was getting even more bizarre. What was going on with these clothes? Who were they for? Did Debbie have something to do with this? Could it be that she was pregnant? His mind was reeling with questions. There had to be more. He went back into the living room and began to snoop once again. He looked through the drawers in the kitchen and even looked in the refrigerator. There didn't seem to be anything unusual there. An immaculately clean icebox isn't much for people to draw conclusions from. Then he spotted it. He had been so rushed before. Maybe he had missed it or maybe it wasn't there. Either way, it didn't matter because there it was. On the corner of the coffee table, neatly angled to be seen from both the living room and the couch, was a picture. The picture was of a young girl, and she was pregnant. She had waist-length brown hair and beautiful big brown eyes. She looked like Debbie, but it wasn't Debbie. McKnight went to the picture and gently removed the cardboard backing from the frame. Slowly, he slid the photograph out from behind the glass. In faded blue ink was written these words, Misty and Summer, just before. The question was, just before what? What he needed was a thorough search into the background of Marshall. From his lowly position of patrol officer, he wasn't going to be able to get that kind of background check without raising some eyebrows. He didn't want to include anybody else in this anyway. This was his investigation as far as he was concerned. It was his ticket to a promotion. No more speeding tickets and wasted hours on mounds of paperwork. No more working at parades and special events as nothing more than a glorified security guard. If he could just put this all together, this would be his big break. This was his chance. He couldn't afford to let someone who he hardly knew run a background check, then stab him in the back with the information. He'd need to find out who this Misty was on his own. How was she connected to the picture he was holding in his hand? Maybe the clothes in the closet were Misty's. 
Maybe the baby clothes were that of this unborn child. He went back into Marshall's bedroom and immediately went straight to his closet. He was looking for a box or a container of some sort that might hold important papers. Expensive-looking dress shoes and a neat row were paired off just below the hanging clothes on the side of the closet. On the other side of the large walk-in was an ironing board. It was unfolded and ready for use, and McKnight assumed that it probably stayed that way. The iron was propped up with its cord neatly tied around it. Below the ironing board was a box, a plain cardboard box with its four flaps interlacing one another to keep the contents inside or to keep something out. The flaps easily released from each other with McKnight's gentle tug. He was kneeling as he thumbed through the contents. Some of it was impossible to detect without pulling it out. On top was a photo album. He quickly thumbed through it, but the picture seemed too old. The cars in the background and the telephone lines on leaning poles indicated a time long gone. All the pictures in the album seemed to be of that same time period. They were probably of his parents or even his grandparents. There was a legal-sized manila folder under the photo album. Marshall's teacher certificate and transcripts from college and graduate school were in that. Under that was a legal-sized envelope. The first document he pulled from that was a fairly bad copy of Marshall's birth certificate. The next was pay dirt. A huge piece of the puzzle was now in his hands. The girl named Misty, who looked so much like Debbie, was married to Marshall. The document he was holding was a marriage certificate. Misty Abigail Anderson. Hmm, he thought. But where was she? The next document answered that question. A death certificate. It was Misty's official death certificate. She had been married to Marshall, and now she was dead. He pulled his cell phone from his back pocket, flipped it open, and dialed the number to his contact at the department. It would only take a few minutes for his contact to determine how she died and whether it was suspicious or not. The answer came quickly. A traffic accident had taken her life almost three years ago. That's all he needed to know. The picture was becoming clear now. This creep's got a thing for Debbie. This poor Misty looks just like Debbie. The entire thing was looking bizarre. The clothes in the closet combined with that bomb-making material. The question had to be asked, did this guy kill all the people on that plane to get that girl to himself? He went to the picture again and sat with it on the couch. He began to wonder how someone with so much going for them could resort to such freakishness. He looked deeply into the eyes of Misty. She looked so happy. A pretty young girl, pregnant, her hands sitting atop her plump belly with a big wedding ring on her finger gave the impression of what had been the perfect marriage. But she was gone now. The perfectness abandoned tragically by death. Now Marshall was alone. 
McKnight almost let himself fall into the trap of feeling compassion for Marshall's twisted, cracked-up life. How dark his world must be. He must have been desperate to return his life back to some resemblance of how it was before the darkness surrounded him. He caught himself and snapped out of it. There was no room for compassion here. Debbie was in Chicago, and Marshall was probably there, too. Thank you for listening. Join us next time as we continue with Darkest Darker Dark. I'm Rodney Mathers. Goodbye for now.